Hello from me, Valerie Singleton, and a warm welcome to the very first edition of the Voices from the Road podcast. It's an exciting new project in which we will seek to create and build a fascinating audio archive capturing the widest possible range of motoring memories, starting way back in 1932. Members of the production team have been out and about in recent months collecting motoring stories from years gone by. These stories could be individual accounts of road journeys, exciting adventures and achievements from specific years, as well as more noteworthy developments in road safety, vehicle technology and motoring law. The key thing is the people telling their stories. It's all about real life on the road. And for our very first item, we return to 1970. The average price of a house is £4,975, and a gallon of petrol costs just 10.2 pence. The first Boeing 747 jumbo jet commercial flight arrives in London. The Beatles disband. The nearly disastrous Apollo 13 space mission takes place, and a surprise general election win puts the Conservative Party into power under the leadership of Edward Heath. Now, as well as being a politician and a sailor, Mr Heath was an accomplished musical conductor and performer, most notably an organist. And our contribution from this year features another musician, Brian Runnett, who was organist of Norwich Cathedral. An acclaimed recitalist, he had already notched up a large number of concerts, including at the proms by the age of 35. Brian Runnett had just given an organ recital in Westminster Abbey in August 1970, when he was tragically killed in a collision on the A6 in Staffordshire. James Luckhurst tracked down the then Norwich organ scholar who had turned pages for Runnett at that Westminster concert to find out more about Brian Runnett's brilliance, the shock of his death and the strength of his legacy. I'm Graham Barber. I'm an organist, retired from the University of Leeds where I was a professor of uh, performance studies. Uh, but I've always kept uh, my organ playing going and, uh, and I'm still playing now at my advanced age. The purpose of our conversation is to take us back to the year 1970 to London and Westminster Abbey for an organ recital that took place on Wednesday the 19th of August at quarter past six. We can be very specific because we have a ticket for that event right in front of us. The recital is given by... Brian Runnett, who was organist of Norwich Cathedral. And Graham, you turned the pages. Tell us why that became such a pivotal and important moment for you and really for English organ music and musicians. Yes, I did. I turned the pages because uh, for the last three years I had been organ scholar at Norwich Cathedral starting just after Brian had taken over as organist and master of the choristers there. So we'd had a three-year working relationship, and more than that, though, we were great friends by then, even though uh, he was much older than me, and I I looked up to him as as, a mentor and confidant as well, to, to an extent. Brian, meanwhile, was flying high and was was establishing himself as one of the leading organists of his generation. 
and it seemed as if there was nothing that he couldn't achieve. He was going to go to the top, and I don't have any doubt that he would have become, indeed, to some extent already was, at the pinnacle of the profession. That recital was um, in the famous evening recital series at Westminster Abbey, uh, itself an accolade to get one of those. And this was just Brian, you know, just doing what everybody had become accustomed to, playing a difficult programme, including Rega's Opus 73, Variations on an Original Theme, and playing it uh, effortlessly, with panache, with brilliance, with confidence, but with humility. As this is a Voices from the Road conversation, we should touch on Brian and cars. Was he particularly interested in cars and driving? Yeah, Brian certainly was interested in in cars to an extent. I mean, he had a very nice saloon car, a Triumph Toledo, I think it was. It was smaller than the Triumph. 2000, so it would have been probably around about that. And uh, he was very proud of that. He also used to, um, he had a very good friend, a mutual friend of ours, uh, who who used to come up in his Lotus Elan um, uh, from London to Norwich and, and, and park outside Brian's house, and he really liked that. You've mentioned uh, his panache and his, his style. Just give us a little insight into you know, what he would look like as he came out to, to perform or to take a bow at the end or, or just his, his general approach. Yeah, well, I, again, um, I can recall that my first sight of Brian was as a debonair and brilliant recitalist at the proms in the summer of 1967. He'd played the Prelude and Fugue in D major of Bach. Itself is quite a virtuosic piece. But he delighted the promenaders by then playing an encore, which was Garth Edmondson's Toccata on Form Himmelhoch. And I remember being particularly impressed at his white tuxedo. He, he was very aware of his public image and he dressed extremely snappily, let's put it that way. Not a hair out of place. And he was very, very proud of his, what were then quite modern and up-to-date contact lenses. It's written on this ticket, Brian's last recital. Can you take up the story of, of why it became his last? Yes. After that recital, after we'd all seen the um, doting fans <laughs> uh, congratulating him and he was being his usual debonair self um, and uh, meeting people after the recital. He then eventually started on a journey back to visit his parents who lived in Southport in Lancashire. And he drove up quite late um, and sadly on the A6 somewhere near Stafford, I think it was, he was killed outright when a, a lorry jackknifed in bad weather. How did you come to hear about it? I was staying with my parents in, in the east end of London and the next day there was a phone call that came through from Philip Ledger, who was the director of music at the University of East Anglia and great friend of Brian's. They worked together, of course, in, in Norwich and he passed on this devastating news. And that's how I got to hear about it. I was absolutely stunned. 
You've written some quite powerful words about Brian and his playing. Could you just share a, a few of the quotes that are there in front of us about the importance of having only the best, pursuing the best? Uh, yes, uh, over the years I've given a number of recitals, um, uh, memorial recitals in, in Brian's name, and one I gave in... Uh, 1990, I think it was, at Norwich Cathedral. I wrote a piece then which it was summarised the, the feelings I had about this, um, this great uh, teacher and mentor that I only had for that limited period of time. Three years, after all, is, is a very small period. And I, I'm just read a few, few comments that I wrote then because uh, I can't put, put it any better than that. Brian's attitude to music making, both as a choral conductor and as a soloist, was uncompromising. To quote a mutual friend, he was, quotes, completely intolerant of anything that smacked of second best, utterly selfish in demanding only the best, and determinedly single-minded in pursuing the best, end of quotes. So I had this honour and privilege of working when I was a, a green and, and inexperienced young musician and organist with this great mentor and, and somebody that I just simply observed and copied. That's the way I used to learn. I just copied what he did, whether it was conducting or, or playing. I just had a mental image of what he looked like and the results that came out, and then I tried to emulate that. So here now, 50-something years on, to what extent do you think you've, you've kept his legacy alive? I, I've probably realised some of the potential that he instilled in me, some in particular certain areas. For example, some of the repertoire I have played and have, have championed has certainly been as a result of his own predilections. For example, he was a great Rager player, Max Rager. Max Rager's music, I mean, it's some of the most difficult music in the repertoire. And not then, in the 60s, very, the 1960s, very fashionable at all. Very few people would dare to play that piece, as I say, that last piece he played, the Opus 73. Very few people would dare to play that. I have played it, and several times I've recorded it, I've filmed it, and it's it's one of those um, iconic pieces of the repertoire that are like sort of a lot of linchpins, really. But other than that, I mean, I don't know. I've got a very different kind of personality to his, and I doubt whether I would be able to survive in the sort of way that he was going. I mean, he was going to the top. He probably would have been organist at Westminster Abbey, St Paul's Cathedral, or wherever. I'm quite sure he would have been in, in later life. I haven't done any of those things. Uh, my life has been in university, so I was uh, a lecturer at Leeds University for many years and then and then eventually professor. So, so that has been more has been slightly more academic on that side rather than on the public performance side. But nevertheless, I've I have I've done lots of recordings. I've uh, done lots of broadcasts and and latterly some filming, which uh, is out there as well. So, yes, I've had a very full life. I'm so, I'm absolutely sure that it was influenced very positively by that start I had with Brian. Well, we're going to finish by just hearing some 
of a piece by Franck, which you're going to play for us here in St. Bart's, St. Bartholomew's in Armley. You're particularly fond of Brian's recording of that from Norwich Cathedral. Just explain why. Yes, it's uh, it's a recording he made just around about the time, must have been in the late 60s, I guess, uh, 68 or somewhere around then. And I haven't listened to it for a long time and, and I just did just this morning and what I found was that it was a beautiful performance one that I could absolutely aspire to myself the tempi in particular are slow they're, they're, nothing about this performance is rushed he's not in the business of showing off he absolutely isn't the technique is superlative of course that goes without saying but the use of the organ is brilliant as well because Norwich Cathedral is hardly a sort of um, a representative of the type of organ that Franck was, was writing for, the Cavier Col. But, but somehow he managed to make that organ sound very French. And um, the other thing I would say is that there's just this fantastic musicality about it, um, which I've always aspired to myself. organ of St Bartholomew's Church in Armley near Leeds. Graham was remembering the life and the death of his inspirational teacher and mentor, the organist Brian Runnett. He was talking to James Luckhurst. You're listening to the Voices from the Road podcast with me, Valerie Singleton, and our next appointment is a memory from 1982. The Falkland War takes place. The British film Chariots of Fire takes Best Picture and three other Academy Awards. At the end of July, 53 people, including 46 children, die in France's worst road collision, and also Princess Grace of Monaco dies in a road crash. The Mary Rose is raised from Portsmouth Harbour, and Poland's solidarity leader Lech Wałęsa is released from 11 months of internment near the Soviet border. In West London, Dawn Franklin is getting ready for her driving test. There's a thunderstorm, and she has only had one proper lesson. Is she ready for it? And what will she do with the freedom that a test pass would bring? My dad's taught all of us to drive um, in a little bit 500, which was my mother's. And I loved that car. He was six foot four and had no trouble getting into it. You know, he somehow used to furl himself into it and unfurl himself out. <laughs> so I learned to drive just by my dad teaching me. And... He was a brilliant teacher, very patient, excellent. I had one official driving lesson with a proper school. It was in the middle of a thunderstorm. When I got out of the car, there was like a foot of water. And she said to me, if you can drive in these conditions, you can drive anywhere. You're fine for your test. Wow. <laughs> and that was the 
that was the night before I was due to take my test. So went there, my test was at 9am. So I was quite happy with that because I thought might still be some rush hour traffic, nice and slow, lots of time for me to think about what I'm doing and what they're requesting of me. So brilliant, go to the test centre. Now in Hayes, there's two routes you go if uh, into Hayes if on your test and there's four routes to go to Southall. Now, at that time, driving in Southall was an absolute nightmare. People walking in and out at the road, double parked, buses trying to get through. It was a nightmare. And I thought, please, please don't take me through to Southall. Do not go left out of this test centre. And luckily for me, he went right. So my dad had taught me the routes, roughly the routes. He'd, he'd done all the three-point turns and the reversing and the parking. He taught me very well and we went right out the test centre into Hayes and I knew exactly where I was, what the roads were like, brilliant. But before that, it was a bit frowned upon to take your test in your own car. Examiners didn't like it. They preferred you to take your test in um, a proper official learner driver's car, but that's not me. I don't like doing official. I like to do what I want to do. So I knew he, he saw the Fiat 500s and he was a tall chap as well. And he, you could just see the frown on his face, like, I've got to take a test in this. Yeah. Was, was he as tall as your dad? <laughs> Almost. He was about 6'2, 6'3. Wow. So I thought, oh no. So anyway, he thoroughly checked the lights, brakes, looked under the hood, he gave it the car a thorough looking over, which we'd done the night before, found one bulb not working, sorted it, done. So he went to get in the car and he whacked his head <laughs> as he tried to get in. And I thought, no, that's it. I'll fail before I've even turned the flipping engine on. So, <laughs> so, so right, okay, well, whatever. I'm going to go through this. I'm going to do it. At least the experience will be good for me for next time. <laughs> so he got in the car and he did the usual blah 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 right let's go turn right brilliant I know all the roads around Hayes no problem went through the test I didn't seem to make any errors that I could see anyway gets back to the test centre turns the engine off he asks you your standard three uh, highway code questions I think it was three highway code questions you didn't have to do a you know a, a a little test before you even got to this stage. Did pass them as far as I could see. And then at the end of it, you know, when they say what's happening, and I could see my dad standing in the distance, like, you know, it's like, please, Dad, don't let me fail you, you know. <laughs> and, and, he, and he actually said to me, I'm sorry to tell you, Miss Franklin, but you passed. <laughs> and it's like, I did. I really, at that point, didn't know whether to kiss or kick him. No, because I just thought, really, <laughs> you know. But you know, I I was brought up to be polite, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, so I didn't say anything, and I was absolutely over the moon. Ran and hugged my dad and said, "Thank you, Dad. You've been a brilliant teacher. I can now tear up my old plates. Look, I've passed my test. Blah blah blah." And of course, I was already insured for the car because. I'd been driving it as a learner. And so 45 minutes after I'd passed my test, I didn't actually tell you this. <laughs> um, I was cocky, as you are. 
<laughs> and my friend was getting married. She was only 17 and she was getting married because a bloke was in the forces and was due over to be stationed in Germany. So it was all very quick, not shotgun, but it was very quick. So I went to Uxbridge and parked in Uxbridge High Street. Okay. Intending to go to Argos to purchase a load of baking goods for her because she was good at baking. Only Argos took forever to bring these goods to me, as they do. And by the time I got back to my car, I got a ticket. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. That must be something that, of a brought, Yeah, that brought me right back down to the earth with a bump. No, that really, like, there you go. Serves you right for being cocky. Now take more care where you part. But that's probably a record. 45 minutes after passing your test, you get a parking ticket. That was Dawn Franklin recounting how she managed to collect a parking ticket less than an hour after passing her driving test. Our final item takes us nearly all the way back to our starting year, but not quite. We're in 1935, the year of the very first compulsory driving tests. Lewis Loof is a tailor from Oldham, and he's excited to be learning to drive. It costs seven shillings and sixpence to sit the test, so no one wants to fail. Lewis is getting instruction from a Mr Gurley. In the back sit Mrs Luth and young Eddie for a supervised road trip to Blackpool. James Luckhurst went recently to meet Eddie, who's now in his late 90s. Eddie recalls those learner journeys of long ago, as well as a few close calls and a disagreement over a speeding ticket. My first journey in the car would be in um, about 1930. My father was getting lessons and when he was quite advanced at it, we went to Blackpool. We had these sandwiches on the beach. So that was my first journey in the car. Let's talk about the instructor because he was quite an interesting man and I believe he stole all the sandwiches, didn't he? Well, yes, he, he was. Yes, Mr Gurley, he loved those sandwiches, chicken sandwiches. Mother used to say he's got a bigger appetite than, than any of us. So and he was there for ages. I'm sure it was about three months. Father did pass the test. I don't know how many times he, tried, he went in for it. Talk about the kind of what happened on those learner journeys to, to Blackpool then, because Mr Gurley's in the uh, passenger seat, you're in the back. I mean, that must have been a thrill for you the first time. It, it was. It was It was a thrill. I'm trying to think which way we went, actually. But, you know, we, we, we got there. We got there and back with no, with no trouble. Occasionally, he'd, he'd just lose um, a traffic... You saw trafficators then, you know, on, on the cars. Get too close to something is snap, snap the one off, or and then he, uh, he, he rented a little ga a garage that was very narrow, and you had to be sure that those trafficators were closed, otherwise you'd, you'd you'd lose them. Did he find it stressful driving? Do you think? Did you find it stressful uh, travelling uh, with him? No, I, I didn't find it stressful. No. He obviously did, because otherwise he went through all these cigarettes. Was he a heavy smoker before he learnt to drive, or did no, he get worse? He got worse in that three months. And what car was it you were in? It was um, a Ford Prefect, which he got from the Oldham Motor Company, because he used, he, he, he used to work in Oldham, so, so he, got, he, he knew the, some of the staff in the place where he bought it from. So it was, it was, that was what it was, a Ford Prefect. Quite a good car, uh, very narrow. It was a green one. 
And people afterwards, people said, don't get a green car because it's unlucky. I have heard that, actually. Describe what Blackpool was like. That must have been a treat, just regardless of going in a learner, drive a car with your dad. But, you know, tell us what you did in Blackpool. Every corner seemed to be selling um, beach balls and kites and rock, of course. (laughs) I can't really remember because you can't get to the beach now in a car, can you? But you got to the beach in a car? Yeah, down, down to the sand. And and we'd face out to the, to the, out to the sea, and and mum would dish out these sandwiches, uh, which it was it was a treat. Yeah. Mr. Gurley yet more than anyone else. He did he had a terrific appetite? <laughs> yeah, he, he realised he was on a good thing there, because every morning he'd come and give me dad um, driving lessons. So I would, it became part of the family. So he learns, gets his license, and then it's goodbye to the Ford Prefect. The war comes along, so cars are few and far between. But he does manage to get a car at the end of the war, I believe. I mean, what were other drivers like with him? What was he like with them? There weren't many cars. I mean, the reason he got that one, because his brother was a, a doctor and he'd ordered a Hillman Minx and, and a ro- Rover. The, the Hillman Minx came first, so he, he sold it to my dad. And then the next, the next week, the Rover came, so... Naturally, he kept the Rover, and <laughs> a, a Rover in those days was a, a doctor's car. Did uh, Dad go on to stay a safe driver? Coming back from Leeds once, much later on, I was in the Air Force. My, my brother was in the Army, and, and these two policemen stopped him for speeding. Uh, he probably wasn't going more than about 38 miles an hour, and my father went crazy with them. He said, have you got nothing better to do? He says, my two boys are in in the army and and you're running me in for for so-called speeding. What difference does it make to you? So he had to go to court for that. He said, and I was the only one wearing a poppy. I I don't know how much he got fined. (laughs) If we just wind back to the Second World War, because you got your opportunity to, to have a go driving, didn't you? You were in India but I believe you were not given the keys to a car. So uh, tell us a bit more. There was a programme when the war was ending called EVT, Educational and Vocational Training. The idea was that if someone didn't have a trade, at least they'd be able to get some bit, bit, they'll have experience in driving. So um, I was taught to drive on this this lorry, fifteen hundred weight Chevrolet. That was that was how that was how I learned. Only three one hour lessons, separated weekly. So it wasn't wasn't much of a course, but it was experience. No time to practice in between, though. No, no, no chance at all. <laughs> when I was demobbed, my father had this Hillman Minx. We put the L plates on and uh, I drove that. Uh, but with driving to Leeds and back every, every week. So I drove hundreds of miles, hundreds of miles. So that when I went in for my test, I've been driving for a long, a long time, covered many miles. Getting to Leeds from North Manchester without the M62, I, what sort of route was that? I imagine there were some quite hairy corners. We, we went down Victoria Avenue and then into Oldham and, and picked up the on the on the tops they called it. Honestly, I, I can't remember then. Was it Delph? And they passed a, a pub, two pubs. One was called the Floating Lights, uh, and one was called Nont Sarah. So maybe maybe there were two routes we took. My father just directed me where to, you know, which road to take. 
he was helping you out learning. Oh, yes. Was he still smoking heavily? And did it? Did you have to as well no, no, to no. steady the nerves? <laughs> no, I didn't smoke then. He smoked, but not 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 heavily. But but he it, it certainly smoked a lot more than he did before he had had his driving. And I don't think I worried him, worried him for driving because. Uh, well, I was a careful driver, and uh, by then I was very well experienced. My next question takes us slightly away from the roadside because I just want you to share what it was like being in the Palace Theatre in Manchester with Laurel and Hardy. I mean, that's quite something. They were massive. They were so popular globally. And yet you say they disappointed you. How on earth did they manage to disappoint you? Well, they, they were used to doing these sketches where either the car they're in falls to pieces or, the, or they're carrying a piano upstairs and it slips down out of the hands and, you know, it crashes down in bits. They were more or less talking to the audience. And so without a script, they, they were just ordinary, ordinary people. So not very funny then? No, they, were, they weren't. I was disappointed in them. I bet it was a packed house, though, was it? Oh, it was a packed house, yes. Oh, the the audience loved them. But but with with watching all these films of theirs, I expected something more. I don't know what they could have done on the stage, but it wasn't what I thought there'd be. But you were there, that's the important yeah. thing. That was Eddie Loof talking to James Luckhurst about his father's driving lessons back in 1935 when I hadn't even been thought of. And it brings to an end this very first edition of the Voices from the Road podcast. We'll be back next week with another fascinating selection of interviews and discussions. And by the way, do make sure that you subscribe to the podcast and tell your friends all about it as well. You may have a story of your own to tell, in which case we would love to hear from you. Details of how to contact us can be found on the notes accompanying this programme. So thanks for tuning in, and from me, Valerie Singleton, until next time, it's goodbye.